Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there were over 1 million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fine hunting for your brilliant brunch, Riesling. Ham's sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this spring at Total Wine & More. Cheers! This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and UpSnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. From burnout and exhaustion to joy and fulfillment. Through the act of serving consciously, it's time to rediscover your passion. It's live with Elizabeth and guests on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Serving Consciously. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bishop, and as always, I'm so pleased that you decided to tune in today, and thank you for being here with us as we spend another hour exploring what it means to be in conscious service. I would invite you to uh, visit servingconsciously.com for more information and resources related to the conscious service approach. There's going to be some really exciting new things coming up this fall, and I want to be sure to keep you posted about that. If you're interested, feel free to sign up, and um, you never get very many emails from me, but I will keep you in the loop um, when the uh, exciting things are starting to happen. I'm really very excited about our show today because it fits so well with my love for paradox and living in the gray area. The conscious service approach itself is based on a blend of many perspectives, beliefs, and philosophies, and I'm a firm believer that there are many paths towards enlightenment and joy and many expressions of what it means to be of service in the world. So today I'm really thrilled to introduce you to my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Rubin. Dr. Jeffrey Rubin is the creator of meditative psychotherapy, a practice that he developed through insights gained from decades of study, teaching, and helping thousands of people flourish. The author of the critically acclaimed books, Psychotherapy and Buddhism, The Good Life, and A Psychoanalysis for Our Time, Dr. Rubin is a practicing psychotherapist in New York City and Bedford Hills, New York, and has taught at various universities, psychoanalytic institutes, and Buddhist and yoga centers. He lectures around the country and has given workshops at the United Nations, the Esalen Institute, the Open Center, the 92nd Street Y, and Yoga Sutra. His pioneering approach to Buddhism and psychotherapy has been featured in the New York Times Magazine. I'm so thrilled to introduce you and welcome you, Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, to the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. I'm wondering if we can start off like I always do, um, and, and perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit about your journey and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing right now. Absolutely. Um, I was a traditionally raised uh, white male in the New York area. Uh, I was competitive. Um, I loved reading. And I loved sports. And I loved basketball. And basketball was probably, in a certain way, I, I see it now, my first uh, spiritual path. Mm-hmm. And when I was 18, uh, senior year in high school, I had a mystical experience playing basketball. Our team was up by uh, two points with Ten seconds ago, the other team hit a shot. and or Actually, we were down, and five seconds ago, they hit a shot. And time started slowing down, and everyone was panicked, and time's slowing down for me. And I went over to my coach, who was also my English teacher, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, tell them not to panic. 
and tell them to get me the ball. So we rolled the ball in, and the clock didn't start until my hands touched the ball. And I turned to dribble up the court, and I went into this space that was sort of spiritual and mystical, where time slowed down, there was no awareness of the crowd, uh, I didn't care about victory, I wasn't fearful of defeat, and I hit a shot uh, as the buzzer sounded, and we, we won by one point. Wow. And it was very strange in the locker room. Uh, the reason I said earlier that I was a typically raised, you know, white male competitive athlete, um, victory didn't matter at all because I was so blown away and touched by what had happened, the way time slowed down, the way time seemed to expand, the fact that there was this space that was outside traditional sort of, you know, pride and ego and we'll win or we better not lose. There was just none of that. I felt like a window, I saw through a new window or a door opened up into this other realm that I, you know, that I, I could call the spiritual, I could call the mystical, but I was graced by something else. And that became the seedbed of two questions. What is this thing? And how do you access it? Mm-hmm. So went to Princeton, uh, majored in English literature, read around widely in the humanities and social sciences, art history, history, philosophy, and so forth. And I think in the back of my mind, I wanted to try to answer that question, those two questions, none, neither of which I answered. And then <laughs> senior year, I began, I, a friend of mine was uh, becoming a vegetarian, and this stuff was really new at that point. This was 1975. You know, it was not in the air the way it is now. And he began to be interested in yoga, and yoga was not the way yoga is now. Right. And so I sort of started to be exposed to it. Uh, and then the year after college, I was reading an alternative newspaper that uh, I got at a health food store in New York City, and it mentioned meditation retreat. So I had done no meditation practice at all, and so I went to the retreat, uh, 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 Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, founded by Jack Cornfield, uh, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, you know, one of the, the first generation people bringing Vipassana meditation, what we think is, you know, what the Buddha taught to the United States. And I did a Christmas retreat, I think it was Christmas of 1977 or 1978, and it just touched me very, very deeply. At the same point, I was studying how to be a psychotherapist, and I was getting exposed to psychoanalysis, and I found that both were synergistic. In other words, the each was richer being integrated with the other rather than pursued alone, but no one in either camp, or hardly anyone in either camp, was talking about either in a positive way. So the analysts looked at religion and spiritual practice as a pathological, and people interested in Eastern thought secretly or overtly devalued Western psychotherapy. You know, that's inferior to spiritual practice or mystical experience. And I had a wonderful yoga teacher in Northern California, Joel Kramer, And he said, and I quote, don't force the synthesis before it organically emerges. Mm -hmm. And it was a great piece of advice, and I did that. So in other words, for years, I just kept going as deeply and wholeheartedly and sincerely into both disciplines. If you read this book in the 70s, uh, Yaki Way to Knowledge, the, the Don Juan series, where he was a UCLA anthropologist, I think, and he worked with a shaman, Don Juan, 
And Don Juan says, you know, does a path have heart? And I just consistently found that both traditions, to me, I didn't care what other people did. I, psychoanalysis is now, you know, really on the outs and devalued by a lot of people. But it just both disciplines spoke to me, and so I just kept studying both deeply. And I mean, really sincerely, so I'd be walking down the street and trying to live the Buddhist ethics. It wasn't intellectual for me. I mean, I was an intellectual, and I valued, you know, reading and synthesizing stuff. It was the way my mind worked. But I, on an emotional, a visceral level, I was really interested in understanding both traditions as deeply as possible and embodying them, not just studying them. They were a way of life. They weren't just something that I was studying. And then over time, I started seeing patterns. I started to see the way they were complementary. I saw the ways they were different but also like the sense of self, the sense of identity, very, very different. The very thing that most Western therapy tries to cultivate, a, a cohesive, strong uh, self, was a form of illness to Buddhists. It was, a, you know, not a, it was an arrested state of development. There's still further we can do. We can still let go of that, and then something else is possible. So I just kept studying both, and then it started clicking how they might be integratable, um, accepting the differences, but also integrating them. And then I wrote this book. Uh, I wrote it in 1994. I guess it was published in 1996, Psychotherapy and Buddhism, toward an integration where I tried to share. And there were clinical cases, too, in there. And I don't think there had been any in the literature. But I actually talked about it, you know, someone who was in psychoanalysis who was a Buddhist and my own experiences meditating and just bringing it together. And then over the years, the integration has taken different forms. So now I'm in a slightly different place than I was then. It's a different integration. I started studying Zen some years ago, and then I became a Zen teacher. And so that influenced the original sort of Buddha's Buddhism that I was studying, had a, di a slightly different flavor once I started studying Zen some years ago. And so I, you know, continued to try to evolve. But that's the essence of it. And does that make sense? And do you have any questions? Is that clear what I'm saying? It absolutely is clear. There's so much about what you said that just resonates with me. And number one, you know, when you talked about the path with heart, does the path have heart? It just sounds to me like you just kept going back to that and saying, I don't know exactly where this is leading or what's going to happen, but I'm just going to follow what has heart and meaning for me. And I think that that's so powerful. Exactly, and, exactly. Yeah. And I completely and it's funny because at times I, I'm sorry, say it again. I said I completely relate because it was the same experience I had. I had been, um, you know, I did my diploma in developmental services and I went back to university for a bit starting a, a bachelor's in, in psychology. And then I left it. I abandoned it for about 10 years and thought about, oh, will I finish that? What should I do? Whatever. Then finally I was inspired to go back and I thought, well, if I'm going to go back, I'm going to focus on psychology, but I'm also going to major in religious studies. And I had so many people say to me, like, what, what do you, you know, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> and I was saying, I don't know, but those are the two areas that I'm interested in and I'm just going to go with yeah. it. And I love that whole idea of let it emerge organically, you know, like just and yeah. the, way, the way of life that you're embodying it because you learn so much through actually walking it as opposed to just thinking about it, right? Just that's beautiful. right. That's right. And then the, and the integration has a deeper, authenticity and integrity because it's organically coming out of your experience it's not superimposed when i lecture on this sort of stuff uh and especially when the younger people in the audience i say look this is really important i often say this towards the end 
I say, you know, this is just my path. It's not, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a footprint for my path. And I say this at the end, at the intro in psychotherapy and Buddhism, the, all of this is meant as a footprint of my journey. It's not meant as a blueprint for your journey. You will have unique life experiences. You will have unique strengths and you need to be open and alert to them and not be colonized by anybody else, me or anyone else in, the, in any of these fields or any field you're interested in. Even if they're wonderful masters in it, their journey is their footprint. You have to find your own path. But that's where I feel hope in the 21st century for more and more is what I call social evolution because if we're each drawing on our unique strengths, then some new synthesis and integration comes that's very heartfelt and it's organic to each person yes oh what a powerful statement footprint footprint of my my journey not a blueprint for yours that is just amazing i feel the same way about the conscious service approach i mean all we can do is share what we've learned along the way and then it really is about people finding their own their own way and their own um you know heartfelt direction and contributing from that place imagine what our world exactly is like. yeah exactly and then if we could connect there's a new book i'm working on that came out of the sort of horror of uh you know the american political situation and i started you know, listening very closely to what my clients many of them were going through a lot of agony about it earlier traumas were triggered and they were sent back to you know younger places when they were voiceless or silenced or or bullied and so forth, and and then the animosity between uh, you know the sort of two sides of the political spectrum in the, in the United States, and so in a heartfelt way, out of that came a lot of painful questions for people and and a sense of lo- lostness also, and so out of that I I started trying to sort of watch what I was saying to them. And, and really noted and start to take notes. And I'm, I'm deep into a book now about how to cope now. And, and the way I conceive of it right now is the last chapter will be Dreamers of the World Unite. And coming out of what we just said a minute ago, if we all support each other in our individual journeys and we come together with mutual respect, curiosity, openness to surprise, then something synergistic arises, something that's greater than the sum of the parts. And I feel hope about that also, if we could just do that, which is the opposite of the, you know, I don't know how it is in Canada. I have some good friends in Canada, but I don't have a pulse, you know, on the politics the way I do in the United States. It's just a culture of hate and a culture of animosity. And that's not code for, you know, one side, Trump supporters. That's a code for everybody. It's just Mm -hmm. in this eternal battle. And I think there's another way. And I've been graced by being exposed to it in my own life you know, wonderful teachers that supported me and uh, people that gave me space along the way, you know, to find my own path. And so I think there's hope in that if we could all come together from a grounded place of pursuing what we value and love and then being interested in other ways and other paths and then somehow see if there's conversation across the divide, something new can come come out of that that's unexpected and that could be very powerful and very healing. I love it. I totally agree with you. What a beautiful statement. Here in Canada, one of our biggest, um, you know, social concerns and within our country has to do with the relationship with Indigenous people. 
And that, you know, I think there's probably a lot of elements in that conversation that would mirror the same kinds of points you were just making regarding the um, state of, of affairs in the States as well, you know. But really, because it's the yeah. same thing. It's opening and being, uh, you know, willing to, to hear and have that respect. And let's bring it all together and have this conversation instead of continually going back and forth about who's right or who's wrong or, you know, that kind of thing. It just doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't get us anywhere. Some years ago, I was at a party and I was standing next to Peggy Noonan, who is an author and a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, I think. And I said to her, you know, if you really look at it honestly, whether it's, quote, right-wing talk shows in the United States or, quote, left-wing, whatever words you want to use, mm -hmm. the, the uh, hosts tend to do one of two things, in my opinion. They either have someone on who's a foil, you know, that they can battle with, or they have someone that they totally agree with. And I said, Peggy, you know, how much does anyone ever learn anything new? <laughs> and I said, I don't, I don't know. I mean, how much does the host learn anything new? So I said, frankly, to me, that's, that's an unmitigated disaster. Like, what's the point? And yeah. I think something else is really possible. And what's possible is this dialogue of surprise, this dialogue of curiosity and surprise that you were just talking about in, in Canada with indigenous people. What if we could have a conversation where the goal wasn't to put the other one down or yeah. fortify our own position? But the goal was to hope there would be some surprise, there'd be something new, we'd grow. Education, I think, comes from the Latin educare, and it means to go beyond, to go beyond, to go beyond where you are now, to yeah. lead beyond or go beyond. How often are we led beyond where we are? So that's what I'm most interested in, and that's where I think, Elizabeth, is most life, conversations with people that lead us beyond, not just for, you know, fortify or justify what we already believe, because we already know that, so yeah. we're not learning anything new. Totally. And I mean, you're just making me think about those moments, you know, for ourselves just personally and individually, when we allow that space to open and something comes in, even if it's a situation we've been in for a long time, but suddenly we see it differently or we feel it differently. And what that, you know, how energizing that kind of um, curiosity and like you say the element of surprise can be I mean I love those moments that's what gives life life yeah, I mean, for sure one the, that's one of the things not the only thing but yeah <laughs> and it makes us feel alive and this too is an antidote to the conditions in the world these kind of things yes oh that's beautiful you know let's take a quick pause here and then we'll come back I want to dive in a little bit more specifically and deeply around meditative psychotherapy and share some of that with our, our listeners. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Serving Consciously. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bishop, and we're talking today with Dr. Jeffrey Rubin. We'll be right back. Is part of your life mission to be of service to others? Making a difference in the world is a tall order. You are the resource when it comes to serving humanity. 
Beyond taking care of yourself, learn to create self-connection in your life. Integrate who you are with what you do. You will find a source of inspiration and energy that surpasses your wildest imagination. Register for the Self-Connection Series at www.elizabethbishopconsulting.com Look under Programs and Services for details. Are you a helping professional looking for inspiration, resources, and community? Visit socialworkhelper.com for relevant articles and learning opportunities. Connect with other difference makers in the world. Socialworkhelper.com Back to serving consciously. I'm Elizabeth Bishop, and I'm so loving this conversation we're having right now, Dr. Rubin. Um, we're talking about meditative psychotherapy, and we're talking about a blend, really, of Western and Eastern practices. And just we're zeroing in on that idea around the element of surprise and opening our opening ourselves to things that we don't already know, um, and how that can really expand our conversation and our experience and and it really is what makes life rich really it is it's part of it at least like you were saying um jeffrey i'm wondering if you could describe for listeners just a little bit more specifically what you mean by meditative psychotherapy and and maybe even touch on those three elements of the approach the stereophonic listening understanding and meaning and liberated intimacy would you be able to do that for us absolutely absolutely so Meditative psychotherapy arose out of decades of my own exploration of both traditions. And again, and for listeners who just came on, I was real influenced early on in my journey by a yoga teacher and philosopher and author and friend, Joel Kramer, in Northern California. And he said to me, don't force the synthesis before it organically emerges. And so as I did that, I was able to not superimpose on either tradition uh, my own ideas, my own beliefs, my own blind spots, my own prejudice, but I was I was able to let them come to me and touch me, and then I was able to see things in them that I wouldn't have seen if I uh, was too rigid about the whole thing, too dogmatic about it. So what I began to see is that the meditative tradition was wonderful at listening, mm-hmm. and it was just wonderful at... Years ago, I worked in a drug treatment, I volunteered in a drug treatment program in a local mental health center. And what we wanted to test was whether meditation and yoga would help um, young adults that were struggling with with addictions. Actually, most of them were teenagers struggling with addictions. So at the end of this, so I, it was an eight-week program, and I, I taught them uh, Buddhist meditation and uh, Hatha yoga. And at the end of the program, 
a girl who was about 15 said to me, I used to listen to music, now I hear it. Mm. I used to uh, eat food, now I'm tasting it. I used to look at snowflakes, now I'm seeing them. And so that's what I began to feel on a very experiential level meditation did. It, it helped me, you know, see what I looked at, taste what I eat, uh, hear what I listen to, to literally, you know, it's a cliche now, but to be more present. And then yeah. what happens is you miss, you miss less life and your life feels more alive and vital. You're more connected to yourself. In, in Zen language, you're more intimate with yourself. You know mm-hmm. what you feel you're less self-critical, you're more self-accepting, and eventually more empathic and compassionate, and then hopefully, you know, wise action. So I felt that the the first ingredient in meditative therapy was the awareness that came out of meditation. Therapy, of course, all different schools uh, emphasize awareness, but there was something different about the meditation, and what that was was the quieting and focusing of the mind. Yes. Imagine that we had a group of people and they had wonderful camera lenses, but their hands were shaking slightly, nearly imperceptibly as they held the camera or they held their cell phone, slightly shaking. The picture may be blurry. Mm-hmm. Now imagine someone with a less uh, developed lens, less wide angle lens, but their hands are still. Yeah. So the first example was a metaphor I came up with in this article, Deepening Listening, The Marriage of Buddha and Freud. And there I talk about just about the listening part of all this. So, but I'm going to, I'll summarize it now. So the thing with therapists is they're often listening, but their mind is maybe slightly not uh, deeply still, deeply concentrated. Now, therapists out in the audience may blanch when they hear this, and I would have reacted when I heard this. But you have to meditate to see what I'm saying or to see if what I'm saying clicks for you. But for me, let me, let me put it in personal terms. For me, I thought I was present. I thought I was listening. And then once I started serious meditation practice, I saw there were deeper and deeper levels of inner concentration, inner focus, inner stillness. Right. So let me give a concrete example and make it easier here. So some years ago, uh, I taught at a psychoanalytic institute near me, the Westchester Institute for Training in Psychoanalysis. And I, it was a listening course, and they had faith in me, so they allowed me to bring in Buddhist meditation. It may have been one of the first times that Buddhist meditation was brought into a psychoanalytic institute explicitly in the, in the curriculum. So basically I started the class with 40 or 45 minutes of yogic breathing and uh, Buddhist meditation. And then we started speaking, we read articles, and we talked about cases. But to a person, the student said, I thought when I came in, I was present. And they were, you know, they were middle-aged, they were experienced people, they had been seasoned people, they had been through life. And all of them said, I thought I was present, and I thought I was aware when I came in the room. I had no idea the deeper levels. So you have to do an awareness practice to see if what I'm saying is true. And the awareness practice could be Tai Chi. It could be something that used to be in the States and it's probably less well-known now, sensory awareness. It doesn't matter what the path is, but it's any path that systematically trains being very, very present. Not the idea, but the experience of it. So that's the first stage of meditative therapy, listening in a different sort of way. Now, Elizabeth, you mentioned stereophonic listening. So what I mean by that is 
Okay, so we've established, or hopefully I've gotten some of the audience curious about the value of meditation, or those that are already med- meditators sort of with me on this. Yes. Now, here's the twist. Here's the twist. Western therapy, or psychoanalysis in particular, offers something, the listening, that I began to feel was not in meditation. So, again, the first thing was meditation was hugely helpful in me being more concentrated, focused, more equanimity, more being more present. But then I began to see, again, because I didn't have an uh, assumption that it was superior to the West, I just looked at what each offered, the dialogue of surprise that I mentioned earlier, then what I began to see is something is missing. And what's missing, or at least for me, what was missing was, and I realized this a few years ago, meditation is not focused on meaning. Right. Buddhism has ideas about how the universe works in, in a deeper, larger way, what philosophers call ontology, you know, the nature of the universe and all that. But they're not interested in the specific meaning. What contemporary Buddhist teachers in the States may say, for example, is we're focused on process, not content. Mm -hmm. Well, Western therapy, Western therapy is also focused on process, especially psychoanalysis, the interaction between client therapists. Uh, And it's very focused on content. So I tried to bring them together, feeling like we need to focus on quieting a mind and then we need to decode or translate the meaning of what arises when we meditate meditators out in the audience you may have found what i found which was even after decades of sincere awareness practice yoga buddhist meditation tai chi whatever some of the same dramas and stories may be cycling in your mind mm-hmm. if you're like me you'll blame yourself and think it's an inadequacy of you Maybe, but I want to interest you in the possibility that there's another issue, and the issue is that's not what the meditative method is focused on. Yeah. That's not a critique. I mean, it's it's just that it was focused on solving a particular problem, helping people be present, focused, and concentrated. It wasn't focused on another issue, which is what is the meaning of what arises. So in stereophonic listening, I I suggest we use awareness practices to focus and concentrate us, and use psychoanalytic ideas about unconsciousness, how the unconscious works, how hidden meaning works, to supplement the focus and concentration. And that way I feel like we have a more holistic way of listening. We're present, but we're also interested in the hidden aspects of, of the meaning of it. Yes. So, for example, there's a story in, a story in a, I wrote an e-book where I talk about this stuff too, too, of the meditative psychotherapy and practicing meditative therapy. And uh, in one of them, I have the vignette of a woman who says to her Buddhist teacher, I don't want to, I mean, I want to study Tibetan Buddhism abroad. Now, the teacher didn't say, what do you make of of the I don't want to? Um, But she happened to say this to me, so I was curious because I'm a psychotherapist, it's one of the hats I wear, as, as well as a meditation teacher. So I was interested in the don't want to, and, but before I could say anything, she said, I guess that's a slip of the tongue, which was this <laughs> idea of Freud that sometimes we say more than we know. And oh, I had an elderly woman that I was treating once, and she said, uh, Friday I'm going to my uh, executioner, I mean my executor. So often <laughs> Freud's idea was that we often say more than we know. It's part of what he means by the unconscious, and sometimes it comes out in speech. And one form that it sometimes comes out in what Freud called slips of the tongue, where we 
say things and then we say we don't mean them, but maybe part of us, did, you know, did mean them. Yes. So, uh, so this woman said to me, I don't want to, I mean, I want to. And then I, she, we were just looking at each other and then she said, I guess that's a slip of the tongue. And then I said, well, what comes to mind? And she said, well, you know, I love Buddhism, but it's not everything. And maybe I'm doing it because my boyfriend is very into it. And I started hearing the um, hesitation and the mixed feelings about it. And when I wrote this up, I wrote, you know, the Buddhist teacher wouldn't know to ask why she said, I don't want to go to Tibet. I mean, I want to go. He would just think it was a kind of perceptual, or he or she would think it was a perceptual glitch. So there's where the Western comes in. And I think this is very, very important. Both are very, very important points. Meditation will help, I believe, meditation will help therapists listen better. And therapeutic ideas about hidden meanings and the importance of the past can help meditators understand more of themselves and thus work out some of the tangles in their practice. Years ago, after... I guess it was the summer of 1978 after, so the first retreat I did must have been in December and January of 1977. So in the summer of 78, I went to Naropa, the Buddhist college in Boulder, Colorado, to follow the person that had been my first teacher at um, in the retreat in, in December 77, Joseph Goldstein. And I did a six-week course at Naropa called Essential Buddhism, and I ran into Joseph um, mailing a letter on Saturday morning, on Saturday morning, and I was earnest and young and, you know, inexperienced, but very, very curious about this stuff. And it was my life, and I was, you know, exploring. So I, I see him in the post office, and I say, Joseph, how do you bring meditation and therapy together? I'm trying to do it in my own life. And he, he paused, and as usual, he had a very sanguine answer, a very wise answer. And he said, You know, if you work out issues in therapy, your mind gets more entangled. If your mind gets more entangled, you can go deeper in your meditation. If you go deeper in your meditation, you can notice your tangles and untangle them, and so it goes and so it goes. So each, again, can be uh, complementary, can help the other. And so that's the first stage, this listening in this stereophonic way. By stereophonic, I mean on two channels at once. Being present for what's really presented and then what's not being said that may be important, the person's emotional tone. You know, someone could yell at me in a session or raise their voice in a session, and, you know, if you're really present, it's a hurt anger or it's a fearful anger or it's an angry anger or it's a, it's a shame-arising anger. You know what I mean? There are gradations, just like silence. There's... If we were silent right now, there could be a hostile silence. There can yes. be a generative silence. There can be a mulling over silence, a creative silence. I guess that overlaps with the generative. But <laughs> but we start to see the deeper levels when we listen on these two levels at once. So that's the first stage, the um, stereophonic listening on two mm-hmm. channels at once. Second stage is this meaning that I just talked about. What does all this mean? Why does someone, someone walks into my session and they, they thrust the check in my face. Session's just begun. Why do they thrust it in my face? Again, it could be like, you know, it could be a glitch or mean nothing. Or it could mean what I discovered with one person is they were afraid that they would forget. 
With another person, it was they were maybe mad about something the previous week, and they pushed the mad away by sort of buying me off, by right. giving me something. It can mean many things. So we need to know what the things mean. Again, this is a little bit different than the, than Buddhism because it's not, you know, not focused on meaning. Although, let me be clear about something I was not clear about. You can, of course, learn about a meaning with an awareness discipline. And Zen, they call it prajna wisdom, the intuitive leap that comes when you're very intimate with something. So you could be uh, listening to music, gardening, cooking, uh, talking to someone. And without any effort, suddenly, out of the blue, seemingly out of the blue, an epiphany comes, an insight comes, a empathy with something that they said comes. The Zen calls this prajna wisdom. And so it can come from meditation. It's just that meditation, because it's not focused. So in other words, meditation can help us learn the meaning of stuff. But since it's not that focused on it, we need to bring in Western ideas about how do you translate meaning how do you decode the meaning of something? We, but both can actually help. You can be yes. meditating, not even in, a, in any kind of therapy, and suddenly a wealth of insights come. And that's probably happened to all of the meditators out there. All I'm saying is that sometimes we need to also actively inquire about the meaning of something. Not, uh, it doesn't just come to us, but it can just come to us through meditation. So that's yes. the second stage. What does something mean? Does that, does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And to me, that's that's... You know, without those two elements there, there's very little possibility for integration and active, like walking it and living it. That's exactly. key, right? Just to, to be aware, but then to inquire and then to understand what what the uh, personal interpretation of that is. That whatever it is, like you said, that comes up makes exactly. total sense. Let me let me give a concrete, painful example. And I was writing <laughs> this the other night, realizing this the other night. So those that are not happy with the American president, uh, as I said, can be triggered, can be beamed back to earlier trauma, um, can be very angry at supporters who seem more into him the more he um, defies conventional behavior. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say this non-judgmentally, just very descriptively. Mm -hmm. So, but how they interpret all that, the people that are, um, down on him or down on his base or people that you know would say as Hillary said and, and I think in a mistake you know the deplorables the people that feel that way they're seeing something through a particular lens mm -hmm. you know what I mean yes. the Trump supporters then become the bully in their mind that bullied them when they were you know in puberty or Trump becomes the dad or the mom that, that did X, Y, or Z to them. And so they, they get very embedded in their mind, and then there's no space. This is a very important uh, part of the art of flourishing, the first chapter, expanding in a space. What I began to see was that we all have this capacity, and I call it inner space. You're exercising it right now, Elizabeth, it feels like to me where we're present, open, we're kind of quiet and spacious. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to recognize it if we're not thinking about it, but when we uh, are alert to the concept, we can start to notice it. And then if you start to listen, people will use spatial language, but I think we don't usually 
register it because we don't have this concept. They'll say, I got to get out of our home. I need some space. So a couple in a tent situation in an apartment or a house, one will say, I got to get out of this space. Some mm-hmm. will say, this isn't a safe space. It's spatial metaphors. And I really began to listen to that and hear that. And when we have our inner space um, collapsed or our inner space imperiled or our inner space um, threatened, we react very differently when we, than when we have expanded inner space. So yes. I start the book out by talking about expanded inner space, which you can get listening to comedy with a friend, um, physical intimacy, gardening. It, well, and, and in fact, it's less important than I list things and more important that the audience reflects on those times when they feel quiet, alert, and literally spacious. Yeah. Often now when I teach meditation in public, or even if I'm going to lecture, even when I'm lecturing on the material on this new book, I, I lectured at a Buddhist center uh, a few months ago on the, on this new book. I was, then I was calling it Sources of Hope in a Runaway World. Now now it's uh, differently titled. But um, I had them write down how they felt, the people in the in the course. And the, it was a Friday night and then a Saturday seminar, Friday night lecture and then Saturday seminar. Write down how you feel. And then we did some practice for about 20 minutes, medita- yogic breathing and Buddhist meditation practice. And then write down how you feel. And then share it. And what people inevitably found was the same stuff was going on. The anxiety about coming to the workshop. You know, what will this be like? Will it waste my time? Will it, will it be great? Uh, my lower back hurts. Um, I have a little tension in my left shoulder. My head's vibrating a little bit. Whatever was going on emotionally, physically, even spiritually, they inevitably found that the same, well, sometimes it, it lessened. Sometimes what was going on amplified. So I can feel exactly what my head feels like, or I can feel the contours of the anxiety a little bit better. In other words, more intimate with, with themselves. Or they said, or most of them said, but somehow I feel more space around it. Wow. I feel it's okay that it's there. That's what I mean by inner space. The same thing is still there, but you literally can move around it better. It's the difference between a garden and every bed is so close that you nearly trip when you're walking in between versus a garden where there's space between the beds and then you can maneuver more easily. Or a relationship where there is a conflict or misunderstanding or hurt or fight, but you don't feel in danger by the other person. In fact, you feel that you're friend and in your corner. And so you can live, and if you move your shoulders around right now, sort of roll your shoulders forward and back, that's the way it feels inside, as if there's more space for maneuverability. You're more flexible, more adaptable. And, you know, we use the word resilience a lot these days, but this leads to more resilience, more emotional resilience. You can work with... Yeah, you can work with whatever is being presented. So, all right, all this leads, the, the stereophonic listening, the uh, being present, the figuring out the meaning, it then leads to where you left us off a few minutes ago, which was, you said, embodying it. Mm-hmm. We then have to make sure we embody it, and I call this different things, liberated intimacy, um, action stage, whatever you want. I frankly think therapy, well, most therapies, not all, behavioral therapies are, are stronger on this. Non-behavioral therapies are weaker, like psychoanalysis is weaker in this area. 
on action. Because I think the assumption is out of the insight, action will flow. Right. Um, you shall, you know, it's in John, you know, you shall, you shall seek the truth or you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, yes. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes <laughs> people find, no, I know it. And people will say this in therapy on either side of the, you know, equation. Therapists will say this. Clients will say this. You know, I know this but yet I still do this. You know, yes. I don't want to drink coffee or I don't want to overeat or I want to declutter or I want to stay more connected with dear friends, but I don't quite, or I want to go to the gym or I want to garden, but I don't, or I'm inconsistent with it. I think a lot of people, have, you know, struggle with that. So this is the third stage action. And what I feel is we need to think about action and, in, and li- what I call liberated intimacy, not just, um, listening and awareness of what arises, the meaning of it. Those are great. And and let me be clear, sometimes that will lead to wise action, but, but when it doesn't, we need something more. So the, mm-hmm. let's actually start, talk about liberated intimacy, and then we'll talk about action. So therapy is actually, psychoanalysis is actually very strong on an aspect of stage three, and that's the liberated intimacy. So we are present, we're mindful, we figure out the meaning, and then what therapy adds to the equation, especially a school like psychoanalysis, is that we play out, we convey what we're struggling with in relationships. You know, as I joke, if you really want to know what a Zen master is like, ask the spouse. Because <laughs> it's, it's not impossible to be on the cushion or on the yoga mat and be very mellow. I remember a, te- a female Buddhist teacher years ago in the 70s, and she talked about being in Tibet and practicing for a long time, and then she comes out of the monastery and out of the cave and out of deep practice, and she gets on a rickshaw, and a man touches her, um, you know, in, in her back, and, and, and she, you know, explodes. Right. This is very natural because often our training is not always in the midst of the difficult things in life. And the idea, this is a kind of weakness in spiritual circles, I feel, it's assumed that there's a carryover, and often there is a carryover, but sometimes they're not. There's not yes. the embodying of it. And so what I find helpful in state, why I have stage three of meditative analysis, again, focusing on mindfulness, focusing on meaning, stage two, focusing stage three, liberated intimacy, is because we play out the stuff we're struggling with in relationships, so we can use that as a testing ground to see where we're still conditioned and where we're stuck and where we're unconscious and where we have blind spots. And then uh, we can use the relationship to cultivate healthier ways of self-care, better ways of relating to other people. So I feel that's the third ingredient, this relationship, this emotional intimacy with other people. Mm -hmm. And then it's easier to embody it. And then it's easier to bring this in the world. Our Our actions become wiser. Yes and visible and we can feel it and we're living it. I often think about, you know, when we know something intellectually, like that knowing in our head, because everybody, I believe, has that experience. You know something and yet you can see yourself going completely against what you already know to be true or the, you know, the choice that you want to make, like you said, and then you go against it. And it's almost like it's that journey from just thinking about it to letting it settle into your heart and your soul. And from there, then finding the way that you express that in the way that you relate to other people and walk 
in the world, really. I, oh, I just love that. What a beautiful explanation of those elements of your approach. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you. And, and often, let's, t- let's take the last thing you said and just work backwards a little bit. So often when we, which we've all had this experience, we're not embodying it. We think we have the intellectual knowledge. We're not embodying it. Play with going back to stage two and see if there's further meaning that you don't yet know. Mm-hmm. If there's a very wise friend of mine uh, talks about Vietnam memorials to our unwitnessed pain. Often, quote, symptoms or struggles in living, I think, persist. We want to get rid of them, but they persist because they're trying to say something. So I'll often say to people, what do you think that stuckness is trying to say? Yeah. What am I not yet hearing? What are, what are we not yet knowing? And so sometimes if you go back to the meaning stage, there's unfinished, as gestalt therapies to say, there's unfinished business. And when we complete that, then it's easy to naturally organically embody it in our ways, as you said, relate to other people in the ways we take care of ourselves, you know, the self-care, the intimacy, we, we embody it, we live it. Yes. Yeah, I often find that in my own life. I'll just ask that question when I sort of see myself going in what I would call a circle or struggling with certain things over and over again. What is it that I'm still needing to learn? What is it that I can't, that I haven't seen yet? What is it that I need to know? And those can be such powerful guiding questions because as soon as you ask the question, you sort of, something inside of you starts to search for for the insight and the awareness. But it's so, I mean, we're here. We're, we're here to connect with other people. We're here to live life, not um, just float. <laughs> Exactly. I think. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And often you'll see this in families where one, sometimes the oldest, is doing well but holding herself or himself back. And then maybe a younger sib, maybe they don't want the younger sib to feel jealous, or maybe they don't want the younger sib to feel bad about themselves, or even it can even be a parent. And I'll sometimes say to such people, you know, it can be freeing to them to see you become freer. So we also enrich the world. A friend, a, a friend of mine lost her husband in 1999, and she said that one of his teachings was it's not always narcissistic to go deep within the self and live from that place. So, of course, this has to be balanced. The, you know, there's a lot of narcissism in the world right now. And, you, know, you can see it very much in, in the States. But also authentically going into oneself and living one's passion and following one's purpose. These are some kinds of things that some of the stuff I talk about in the art of flourishing. To me, this is part of flourishing, expanding inner space, figuring out, uh, living based on what we're passionate about, discovering our purpose, uh, embodying our ethics, doing, doing this stuff in the world can also be inspiring for other people. So it can be a gift to the world when we do this. When we create this integration that I'm trying to point to with meditative therapy, mindfulness, meaning, and liberated intimacy, what happens is that we relate better with ourselves and better with others, and then others can see the possibility sometimes, and that inspires them. You know, I want to try to do the same thing. I want to try to live a better life for myself. Totally. And I I mean, I always think of that as being in a place of personal power, like just really knowing, being able to stand there and how that just naturally opens space. Um, You're not giving or taking away power from somebody else because we really can't. We can get in the way of it or we can encourage it. 
But if we stand in our own, we're doing the most powerful thing that we really can do. And yet it's often such a challenge to do that, right? Especially in relationships with other people. Yes. Oh, that's so yeah. powerful. It, uh, Sorry, go ahead. Can, can develop if the relationship is a space in which that's part of the conscious goal of each person. Let yeah. this be a place where I help you flourish. Yeah. And I support you flourishing and you support me. You know, at the beginning, um, w- one question people sometimes ask me is, what is flourishing? You know, the words, we're throwing the word around, what is it? And the simplest definition I could say is to take great care of ourselves and enrich the lives of other people. I love that. That's a beautiful question, too, for listeners to continue to ponder um, as we're coming to the end of our call, which went so fast. Um, is how are we flourishing? How are you flourishing? How am I flourishing? Um, and, and to just be able to go deep within and then live that. It's beautiful. Jeffrey, we could go on and on and maybe you'll uh, consider coming back at a later date and sharing more information. Absolutely. But I, Absolutely. I would love to let listeners know where they can find you. So, I know you're on uh, Facebook. Yeah, I'm on Facebook a little bit. Like yeah, I know. One today to <laughs> uh, I'm trying to be mindful in my use of it and uh, uh, also uh, tweet a little bit. But uh, probably go to the website, which is under construction, so it's in transition right now. drjeffreyrubin.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-U-B-I-N.com. Um, uh, or they could email me if they, uh, if they have questions or anything. Um, uh, and I'm momentarily forgetting my email. Jeffrey Rubin at optonline.net, optonline.net. And one thing I want to share is that it's not a burden to ask a question or uh, want to share something because I feel like a lot of teachers help me along my way. And I wouldn't be, wherever it is I am, I wouldn't be here without standing on their shoulders. So I love to pay it forward by just supporting what other people are into and what other people are curious about or thinking about. So so feel free if you have questions or want to, uh, you know, talk about something just to be, you know, to be in contact. Beautiful. And if you're interested in the book, the best place to go probably is, uh, is Amazon. Yeah. Or uh, some local bookstores have it, but some don't. And it's The Art of Flourishing, A Guide to Mindfulness, Self-Care, and Love in a Chaotic World. That's a new edition that has a the end that's in the hardback that came out some years ago. And it also has a forward by Shinzen Young, the Buddhist teacher, who is one of my Buddhist teachers. And it has uh, a new subtitle, a new preface, and it also has a new preface that I wrote where I try to uh, say where I think the world has been since uh, the book originally came out from then till now. Beautiful. And just so listeners remember, I will be putting um, the link to the replay as well as all of uh, uh, Jeffrey's contact information on my website at servingconsciously.com. So it will all be there if people are interested in reaching out and connecting. And I can tell you right now, Jeffrey, I will definitely be emailing you. <laughs> please feel free. Yeah, please feel seriously. Please feel free. Wonderful. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in today and for listening. And thank you, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, my guest today, for sharing all your beautiful examples, your information, your approach with um, meditative psychotherapy and and just such beautiful wisdom and insights. I, I was jotting things down the whole time you were talking. So thank you so much for being here. 
Elizabeth, thank you so much for having me. And also thank you for doing what you do, which is a real gift to the world. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks again, everyone. You've been listening to Serving Consciously. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bishop, and we were blessed with the presence of Dr. Jeffrey Rubin today. I hope you enjoyed it. Talk to you next time. You've been listening to Serving Consciously with your host, Elizabeth Bishop. Consciously create your approach to work. Visit www.elizabethbishopconsulting.com. Join us on every second and fourth Friday at noon to continue rediscovering your passion. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Every bunny loves honey glazed carrots, a great side dish for your springtime celebration, and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Wine is made in virtually every country in the world, and I'm ready to give you a tour to find the right one. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this spring at Total Wine and More. Cheers! Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Every bunny loves honey glazed carrots. A great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Wine is made in virtually every country in the world, and I'm ready to give you a tour to find the right one. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this spring at Total Wine and More. Cheers! <laughs> 